Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another History Hack. Today, I, uh, Josh Proven, a voice that you don't often hear on the uh, on the presenting side of the of the microphone, is joined by uh, one of our two fearless leaders, Alina, and a special guest, Roel Conendike. Lovely to be here, guys. I'm so glad that you keep asking me to uh, present shows with you. Although, honestly, you could you could do an entire episode as to why. But today, I'm so glad you did, because today we're talking about the Persians. And I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. If I was to have a hashtag about whose side I was on in the Persian Wars, it would be hashtag Team Shahenshah. I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss. Speaking of kings, but, 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 but that is Middle Persian. You can't just apply that to the Achaemenids. I'm sorry. They well, don't use that phrase. <laughs> well, this is why you're here, Roll, to, to, to <laughs> just to, to annoy you. To, no, to guide, to guide <laughs> idiots like me, who must just muddle along in this, this, this classical dark age, self-inflicted dark age. <laughs> but we will be educated. Um, educated. God, I sound really East, East London there. Uh, I'm with Josh. I should be sounding RP British right now. We're going to be educated about the Persian Wars, but we're going to do a bit of um, a bit of background. I'm going to annoy Rule for fun because, well, I like to annoy him for fun. I wasn't in his it. class to annoy him, which really sucked because you came into Birkbeck as I went straight into 20th century history. So I wasn't there to poke fun at you then. So I have now to have to make up for it to start poking fun at you now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you got the opportunity in the end. No, thanks very much for having me. I'm really, really great to be back on the show. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? I think if we start with the first question, because we need a bit of background information. I mean, I know what the Persian Wars were. Josh knows what the Persian Wars were, but some of our listeners might not 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 know what the Persian Wars were. So, tell us a little about what they actually were. Was there just one? Was there two? Was there three? I mean, what is all of this about? Well, Persian Wars is kind of a term we use for a really long period in which, predictably, the Persians um, had a conflict with the Greeks. You could also call these wars the Greek Wars, I guess. At least one uh, academic work provocatively calls them that on purpose. Um, but it's basically conflicts between Greek states and the Persian Empire. So the Persian Empire has emerged very suddenly in the middle of the 6th century BC and has uh, covered almost the entire uh, Near East in a very short order. And this included, uh, when you get to the coast of Asia Minor, so basically the western stretch of what is now Turkey, um, includes a number of Greek states. And they become subject to the Persian Empire, then they rebel, they get resubjected, they rebel again. A few generations later, they get resubjected again. And at that point, the Persians have essentially turned their eyes to the rest of the Greek world as clearly a cause of, a source of some, like, instability, a source of potential uh, aggression. And they decide, you know what, we're going to expand across the Aegean into Europe. And those conflicts where they tried to do that, so the repeated invasions of the uh, European mainland, and and especially the Greek mainland, the southern Balkans, uh, are known as the Persian Wars. And so that starts proper, technically, just after the suppression of the Ionian Revolt. So that would be in 494 BC. Uh, You have an invasion that, a first invasion a few years after that, that doesn't lead anywhere. Then you have a second invasion that ends at the Battle of Marathon. 
Then you have the big third invasion, which is the one that everybody knows about, where Xerxes himself crosses the Hellespont, marches into Greece, and you have these famous battles of Thermopylae, Salamis, and Plataea. And then afterwards, it does go on for another few decades. There is officially an end to all this in 449 with the so-called Peace of Callias, when Athens makes peace with Persia, although that is what some sources say anyway, um, not all of them, which is helpful. Um, but that's that's when the period officially comes to an end. So that's when the when the Greeks and Persians stop being on a sort of permanent war footing. So you could talk about this as a period of almost 100 years in which there is on and off warfare between some Greek communities and the Persian Empire as they kind of try to establish, you know, where the boundaries between the two is supposed to be. The Ionian Revolt is the one in all the books that sort of sets it up and is always interesting in, in my mind because there's, it's sort of like a blanket statement about the Ionian Revolt was crushed by the, the Persians. And it's I believe it's implied in a couple of places that the Persians never lose a battle in Ionia and yet then do nothing else but except for Thermopylae, but we'll get to that. <laughs> well, they lose initially they lose one sort of skirmish outside of, of Ephesus, and then the, the Greeks take Sardis, but they only take the city, not the citadel, which they never no one ever takes until Alexander the Great. Um, so they just all they can do is sort of plunder and, and accidentally burn the city um, and then go home again because they just don't have the means to besiege uh, the Persian stronghold. So the Persian king of Marathon, I believe, in, in charge at that time is Darius, isn't it? Yes. So initially you have Darius the Great, who is um, in in uh, or is the great king from 522 until 486. Right. So for most of the period that we're talking about, but not the final uh, invasion of, of the Greek world, mm -hmm. the, the final and, invasion of mainland Greece. Mm -hmm. um, Darius is, is the is the king. Right. And it was his ever so easy to pronounce named son Xerxes. Yes. Who invaded during the Second Persian War. What do we know about him? Well, so he is the son of Darius, but he is not the eldest son. And it's kind of a question why he was selected. Um, so he has at least three older brothers from a previous, um, from, from one of his stepmothers and, and his father. Um, and most likely the reason that he was selected, which he boasts about in his royal inscriptions, he says, you know, although I had brothers, Darius chose me to make, made me, um, second after himself. Um, it's probably because he was the first son that Darius had with Atossa, who was the daughter of Cyrus the Great. Darius, I mean, we're fairly certain now that he was a usurper, that he stole the throne from its rightful heir um, in a convoluted series of events that are sort of hazily attested both in Persian and Greek sources. Um, but he needed to establish his legitimacy. And one of the ways to do that was marrying the daughter of Cyrus, who was the great founder of this empire. And Xerxes was the first son that he had with this uh, daughter of Cyrus, uh, Atossa. Um, and it is, you know, Herodotus and obviously all the Greeks like to say, oh, it was because she was so influential with Darius and she managed to sort of push her own son forward. And it was just the sort of court intrigue that allowed this to happen. But most likely it was just because that was a great way to, for Darius to essentially graft himself onto the Achaemenid line or sort of essentially create that line out of his own um, branch of the family and the old uh, the old inheritance of Cyrus. Um, so Xerxes was was um, intended to be this candidate who would reaffirm the legitimacy of the house of the Achaemenid dynasty. And he presents himself very much in his inscriptions as the continuity candidate. He is the one who is constantly boasting about Darius started doing this and that and I finished it. So a lot of inscriptions, uh, just, just monuments, building projects like Persepolis and the fortification at Susa. You get these inscriptions by Xerxes saying, my father Darius started this great work and I finished it. So he's really trying to stress like, I, you know, I am just the same guy as my dad. I have the same ambitions. I have the same qualities and I achieved the same greatness for this empire. And that's why I'm doing this. And it's obviously very easy to see the attack on Greece um, in the same vein. It's just him saying, okay, well, Darius tried this twice, um, not in person. He never got personally involved with these campaigns, but he twice launched major operations against uh, Greece across the Aegean, um, didn't succeed. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to finish the job. That is very much in the, uh, definitely he has a plan <laughs> in what he wants to do. My goodness, I wish we had. I wish we could do an episode just about Cyrus the Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about Xerxes? But every time I think of him, uh, see, 
ladies and gents, this is where I start to poke the bear for fun. Every time I think of Xerxes, obviously that uh, vision of him surrounded by gold and coming out of his nose and covered yes. in chains and all sorts of things to do with fit, handsome men in armour surrounding him and fighting to the death at Thermopylae. Yeah, so Rodrigo Santoro's famous role, of course, with the extra octaves down in the voice and everything. Um, so, so let's poke this bear a little bit more. Talk like, to us. It's very interesting, like that picture of Xerxes. I mean, I, I genuinely don't know what, what inspired Frank Miller to depict him that way, because there is, it has no, no connection whatsoever to actual, you know, Near Eastern depictions of Persian kings. I mean, they have a clear consistent iconographic image of themselves as these sort of coiffed, bearded, crown-wearing figures who are obviously fully dressed. You know, they're very nicely dressed, but they're not, you know, walking around like sort of displays of piercings or whatever. But one of the things that it that is arguably taken from both Greek and Near Eastern traditions is that the king supposedly is always like the most handsome of his people. Right. So there is a, a clear sense in which he, they are supposed to be or expected to be particularly strong and tall and good looking. And that's something that some of the Greeks sort of credulously take that on, like that royal propaganda. They just accept that. So some Persian kings are li literally described by Greek sources as like more handsome than anyone else in the army or in the, in the, in the kingdom, in the empire. And that's part of their sort of royal glamour. Right. That's part of the image of royalty. Um, so I guess that's what he was maybe getting at. But then, like, all this idea about him being a god king, that the Achaemenid kings were not gods. Like, they are very clear about this. Like, they are servants of Aramazda, the, the, the lord of order, um, the lord of all good things in, in, their, in their cosmology. Um, but they are his agents, not his avatar or anything. They are not gods themselves. They are not worshipped as gods. They are not treated like gods. Um, the only possible origin for that idea might come from the traditions of how um, Persians were required to bow before their king, to, to sort of prostrate themselves before the king as a sign of respect. And in doing so, they made a gesture that Greeks only did before gods. And so when later on Greeks and Macedonians invade the Persian Empire and they see the Persians do this to Alexander, they mistakenly say, well, they're treating him like a god. They shouldn't be doing that. And we certainly won't be doing that because we don't treat mortals that way. But it's, you know, within a Persian context, this isn't actually about divine worship. This is just something they do as part of their affirming social hierarchies. And so, you know, the idea of, of this being a sign that the, the Persian kings are themselves gods or thought of as gods, um, is is complete misunderstanding. So that's not actually in any any source. I don't know why they chose to do that. I really don't. I I have I have no clue either. I mean, it's 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 so un. Greeks would have understood more if the Persian king dressed very scantily <laughs> and they wandered. Would have respected him more. Yeah, probably. they would have. The, I mean, the, you know, the 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 Greeks made fun of the Persian kings as these effeminate silk wearing layabouts uh with all the they they mocked the hairdos and everything like that and here's this guy who looks more like a celt slash greek frankly with the yeah, piercings although, and everything what, what is um, his ethnicity rodrigo santoro i don't know but brazilian i think i have I, well yeah that <laughs> Um, Iberian Celt. Uh... <laughs> but this is the thing. So obviously the image of him being, you know, festooned with gold and, and living in this pavilion with a pavilion of decadence, that's obviously tying into Orientalism. Like yeah, the, yeah. the whole idea, like, oh, the Eastern court with all its mm. fancy nonsense. So that that's pretty easy to understand. But just the particular portrayal of the king is really bizarre. Like, Very strange. Can I at add least something give else him a nice this? beard. Like, they always have beards, these guys. Yeah. Like, that's a whole Careless. mark of kingship. <laughs> I just I mean, want to add something else into this, because not only do they portray him like that, they also change his voice, and they make his voice incredibly godlike. Yeah. So he has this very deep, dark overly masculine you know i am the one and only person voice and it kind yeah. of doesn't really work no and it's that one's also just i don't know i have no idea what inspired that obviously in the comic as far as I, in the graphic novel as far as i know his voice is not specially like signed out like marked out as being something supernatural like just like 
just like the other characters. So I don't know. They just decided that, you know what? We were going to go. <laughs> we're just going to go with this. This is going to be cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a strange set of choices. But yeah, it's um, it, it, it kind of does a weird thing of conflating ideas of decadence and, and Orientalism with ideas of effeminacy. And like the, the queer coding is widely discussed, right? The idea that they queer coded him, um, which would be just as much of an affront to Persian sensibilities of masculinity as it would to contemporary Greek ones. Like neither neither side in this conflict would look at something like that and say, "Yes, that looks like a manly king." Yeah, um, I, I would follow. I, I would I would let this man rule over me. Well, you know, <laughs> literally. I mean, um, that that is the weird thing is that it becomes completely detached from any contemporary values, and obviously that's fine. It's a modern product, but the reasons why they made those choices are completely obscure to me. Mm. So let's talk about some of the sources of available then, since this is obviously where we need to go to have a look at uh, reality. Um, what? <laughs> well, I know, but the the most obvious is is Herodotus. And what else is available? And how trusted are these sources? And it's queuing you up, Alina, to to make fun of Herodotus. <laughs> I won't make that much fun of Herodotus, ish. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, Herodotus is important because Herodotus, I mean, he set out to write this, the history of, you know, specifically all all the great things that are worth worshipping and, and admiring, and in particular, the reasons why the Greeks and barbarians went to war, right? That's his that's his project, as he puts it himself. Um, and so this is his topic, and this is why he wrote this thing, which ends up being the earliest work of historical writing that survives in full. Like, I mean, it wasn't, he didn't invent this genre from whole cloth, but we don't have anything else. And for large chunks of it, it's really all we have. I mean, there's no independent account, for instance, of the Ionian Revolt. He is the only person to describe that in any detail. Um, and, and for most of the Persian Wars, that's that's kind of, you know, for the, for the ensuing campaigns of the campaign of Marathon, the campaign of Xerxes uh, that ends at Plataea, it's the same, same thing. Like, we, we mainly rely on him. We have some other accounts from Diodorus and later authors who are working with some different original sources, which are lost. Um, but most of the time they're actually worse. So they, <laughs> you know, we, we we would like to say that they provide a necessary corrective, but they're actually just very confused a lot of the time and they don't actually tell us many different or new facts. Um, and then from the Persian side, there's effectively nothing about the Persian Wars. They just, the Persians didn't really have as much of a tradition of historical writing. There was a tradition of something like a royal annal which is preserved in one inscription about early the early reign of Darius, but that's a complete like unicorn. There is no other source like that. So after Darius essentially establishes himself on the throne, Persian kings, you know, all of his successors, they stop boasting about their own achievements. Essentially, they boast about building projects, but they don't boast about oh, I came to power and I fought all these people and I marched all over the place. They just speak about their power in generic terms. You know, here are the people I ruled over. These all, all these people owed me tribute. Isn't that great? Isn't the empire all powerful and eternal? Whereas talking about individual campaigns, would just distract from that. You know, it would just, you know, get us muddled in like, oh, well, you went over to the Greeks and it maybe was a little bit difficult. Like, we don't want to talk about that. You know, we have this structure that is unshakable and eternal. And so they don't like to talk about it. Um, and understandably so when you realize that the Greek wars were not exactly their, you know, their finest hours. So in many ways, you can imagine that they were willing to say like, well, let's just forget about that. As long as we're in charge, what does it really matter? Mm -hmm. I think I'm still that... sore about yeah. the whole Herodotus and Thucydides incident on History Hack, <laughs> where I lost out to Herodotus because apparently he was a better historian than Thucydides. But... <laughs> To be fair on Herodotus, even though he's a fantastic storyteller, because, you know, clearly Thucydides is the better historian, clearly, he still does manage to give you these sources that are desperately needed, especially, for example, for historians of Greek and, and Roman history. He influences so many other historians in the way he tells the stories and the facts and the figures and the things that he provides. I'm very lucky. I've got to underline this as a historian. I'm very lucky. I had my own very own speaking source that I recorded with yesterday. Historians of Roman and Greek history, even medieval history, you have to work with what you've got. And Herodotus gives you so much information that otherwise is lost to God knows where. 
-hmm. Yeah, so this is the thing. And it would be really great if you could have some kind of alternative source that can can inform the story. Like, I don't know, clear archaeological traces like you have for some major events in history where you can just trace, you know, the siege lines or the city foundations or, you know, you can find inscriptions telling you the whole story on the on the outside of the building or whatever else. But for the Persian Wars, there's just very little. I mean, there's there's good archaeological evidence that they did indeed raise Athens. Um, so that's something that we can see. But beyond that, it's very, very difficult to, you know, we have the we have the monument in Istanbul that the Greeks dedicated after their victory of uh at Plataea, just moved to to Constantinople in Roman times. Um but other than that, archaeologically, there isn't that much to see. So you're really relying on Herodotus to tell you the day-to-day of you know, like what actually happened in this conflict. And then unfortunately, of course, Herodotus, you know, he's a bit sort of all over the place in terms of his narrative. He likes to go on tangents and he likes to tell you like backgrounds of things that he discovered. And he likes to tell you different accounts of the same events where he just kind of throws his hands up and say, I don't know which one to believe. So, you know, take it for what you will and things like that. But at the same time, he is, I think, being very conscientious about that kind of thing. He, he knows what he's doing and he's trying to be as good a historian as he can be. So, for instance, when he gives you different accounts, like he's he's citing his sources effectively. He's saying, like, these are the accounts I've heard. I found it very difficult to decide between them, so I'm leaving it to you. So other times he says, well, I don't believe this story. I think this one's more credible. Other times he said, I couldn't find this out. So there's a very clear sort of way in which he's trying to be accountable for what he's done. Um, and this is, ironically, nowhere near as true as it is or nowhere nowhere as true as it is when he's talking about persian army numbers which is the one part where we absolutely and unequivocally know that he's wrong right he's he says that xerxes invaded greece with an army of two and a half million fighting men and that if you count all the camp followers and servants and everybody else who was involved in this uh, the grand total was more than five million we know this is logistically impossible. We know this cannot possibly have happened, right? This, there is no way that that many people could be gathered in one place in antiquity and fed and watered and moved around. It's just not possible. Um, even in modern day, that would be an unimaginable uh, migration. But that is the time when he is at his most scientific. He tells you exactly how it breaks down by people, by the number of ships, by the number of contingents, how many people came from each different side, Plus, on top of that, he actually shows you the method by which the Persians supposedly counted all of them. Like he tells you they made a little a little walled enclosure in which they could fit 10,000 men and then just put in 10,000 and then drove them out again, put in the next 10,000, drove them out again so that they could sort of keep tabs of how many 10,000s there were. And he says they went through this whole process to count the army and that was the result. In other words, he's really trying hard to make you say that this is empirical like evidence. I have the I have the receipts of this fantastical number. So there are ways in which Herodotus is sort of simultaneously a good and terrible historian. And you have to kind of give him credit for, for managing that balance somehow, where yeah. he's like coming up with things that he himself doesn't believe like when he gives you the total he himself says i don't believe they could feed all these people he knows <laughs> like he knows <laughs> so like, like but he cannot go back to his own calculation and say well i must have made a mistake right it's up yeah. to the reader to point to go back back to all of those numbers that he gives you all of that work that he puts in and says this is where you made a mistake and if you can't point to that, then you have to go with it. That's Herodotus's own take on it, basically. It's just like, this is what I got, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. The The thing is, as well, that you were talking about that there's no, there's no Persian sources. The reason why you can't check Herodotus's facts, his numbers, is because any records that the Persians kept were likely destroyed when a certain place was destroyed. <laughs> by yes, a certain... Vandalism. Yes. By a certain expansionist <laughs> king who decided arbitrarily to launch himself and his culture. <laughs> Unprovoked, yes. <laughs> Onto another. <laughs> no, very much so. I mean, obviously, not. we don't know if there would have been a Persian record for him to destroy of this, of this event. Because, as I said, we don't have any evidence mm. that there was a historical tradition of this kind. What we do have is traces, because Herodotus obviously spoke to different peoples, not just to Greeks, on, on various sides of this conflict. He also spoke to Persians and, and Egyptians and Scythians. And 
he there are some traces in his story of perhaps the way that the Persians might have been telling this. And there's also a later tradition that hypothesizes how the Persians told this story, in which it turns out very differently. I mean, not, not the end result, but like they just don't talk about the end result. They just talk up to the point where they were winning and then they just mm-hmm. stop and they say, well, job well done. We're, we Xerxes went home and everything was fine, <laughs> um, which is obviously great because from, from a royal propaganda point of view, if you're addressing people in different parts of this empire who have never seen a Greek before in their lives or only as employees of the king because there were Greeks, you know, working on Persepolis, um, you know, and, and there were doctors at the, at the Greek court, but you only know them as servants of the king. It's very easy to believe that actually, you know, he won or at least he wasn't defeated because that's impossible. He's still in charge, isn't he? So it's, it's probably very easy to spin that. Can I just say I love the amount of tangents that were going on left, right, oh, yeah, and sorry about that, yeah. I was going to bring this back. <laughs> I mean, you, you asked, you, you brought this on yourself by agreeing to let me in on this. Because... <laughs> oh no, I take full responsibility for no, 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 letting no. this drag on for two hours. Let's you know what it is? It's like rounding up the two of you. That's what it's going to be. I'm going to hurt the two of you now. So I'm going to bring us back see, on track. See the length of some of my videos on my own channel. You'll see what ranting is. Oh, no, no <laughs> ranting now. Right. Let's bring us back on track. Why? Because we're concentrating on a specific battle today. And I don't know why I'm pointing in my video. I'm pointing like a a, a, a teacher at naughty school children. <laughs> we, we're talking about the battle of, uh, which battle are we talking about again? The battle of Plataea. Plataea. And it's a very specific battle and that's why we were concentrating on it because I asked Rule what he'd like to talk about and this was the battle that we've come up with today. Talk to us. Because he is a man of culture. He is a man of culture. I'm actually really excited to know about this because however many times you bring up Herodotus, which I think I might do for fun, is to Google the word Herodotus in your article and see how many times that comes up, (sighs) just out of curiosity, which I might do in a second. But, I mean, talk us, I mean, how do we get here? What is the battle? Where did it take place? Who are the key players? Give us a little bit of context before we start hashing out a little bit of these details. Yeah, sure. So basically, this is the 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 final point of Xerxes' invasion of Greece. So it's 480, and Xerxes has been spending years gathering his army, and he's invaded Greece. Um, he's marched through basically what is now northern Greece, um, down into Thessaly, and then defeated the Spartans at Thermopylae, uh, taken Athens. He's raised Athens to the ground. But there is still an alliance of Greek states that continues to resist. And so that's basically where the first campaign season ends, is where he has taken control of Athens, but his fleet has suffered defeat at Salamis at the hands of the Athenians and the rest of the Greeks uh, gathered together. Um, And south of Athens, the evacuated Athenians who have taken all of their population out of Athens um, and are now sort of in in essentially a naval power (laughs) um, on the move, and the rest of the Peloponnese is still united in its decision to resist his onslaught instead of submitting like the rest of the Greek world at that point has done. Um, so that's where that campaign season ends. And then Xerxes goes home. And obviously the Greeks paint this as this great sort of he's, he's running away with his tail between his legs. He's fleeing from potential defeat. But more likely we should see this in sort of Near Eastern traditions where um, the king is only expected to lead his expedition the first year. And then he, you know, he needs to prove his legitimacy. He needs to prove he can lead men and defeat his enemies. But then he's done. He can go home. It's fine. So he just goes home and then, you know, his job is done and he leaves the rest to his trusted uh, generals. And so the man he leaves in charge of the remains of the Persian army, that is to say the the, the chosen troops, the chosen contingents from that army um, that are most uh, effective at finishing the job, um, he leaves his cousin Mardonius. Uh, Mardonius is is one of those nobles that you can like is astronomically powerful men in the Persian Empire, just shy of the actual kingship. This is somebody whose whose family is intertwined by marriage in multiple ways with the royal family. So this is one of the people who's closest to the fire of anyone in that empire. His father Gabrias was one of the conspirators who put Darius on the throne. So this is one of the the, the absolute top of Persian nobility, but also an experienced general. Um, he's a capable counselor. He's one of these people who is like most likely to resolve the issue. You have experience fighting Greeks. He has experience experience ruling over Greeks. He was part of the um, satrapal reform after the Ionian revolt, all these kinds of things. So Mardonius is in winter quarters 
in Thessaly. So he goes north a little bit with his army to find a place to spend the winter where there's food supply. And then he marches south again to finish the job. So we're now in 479. And at that point, after many months of Athenian cajoling and demanding that the Spartans do their bit for this alliance, which so far they've been wildly underperforming, obviously they sent a token force to Thermopylae, which was predictably overrun. And since then they have done effectively nothing to help anyone. Um, they've been turtling on the Peloponnese. They've been building a wall across the Isthmus to try and keep the Persians out. And the Athenians, whose territory is north of the Isthmus, recognize this as being essentially abandoned to their fate. So they've been very aggressively pushing them to finally do something, march north, help us out, confront the Persians in the field. Um, and the Spartans now finally do. So they bring out their full levy, or at least something close to it, and they demand that their allies send the same. So they've sent this full militia outpouring, pouring out of the Peloponnese um, in order to confront the Persian army. Um, and the Persians at that point are back in Athens. They've sort of raised it again for good measure, just sort of symbolically reasserting that they're still in control, you guys. Um, but at this point, because they hear that this army is approaching, and this is actually a large land army, which is clearly intent on, on forcing a decision, um, they withdraw north into Boeotia. So this is a sort of relatively flat area. Plains are not very common in, the, in mainland Greece. There aren't that many places where you can deploy a large army, and especially where you can deploy the great Persian strength of cavalry, where you can maneuver with cavalry. So they move into Boeotia where they would be able to do that. So this is a, a relatively flat space on the banks of the river Asopos. And the Greeks do follow them there, but they recognize that you know the plain would be kind of advantageous to the Persians, so they don't really want to march down into it. So what they do is they put they set up camp on the foothills of the mountain range that separates Athens from Boeotia. There's a mountain range called Kithairon. They are on the foothills on the north side of that mountain range facing the Persians down in the plain. And that is where they know this decisive battle will, will take place. Yeah, it's it's a very dramatic sort of next step. And Mardonius shows great skill, I think, in the campaign, to be honest, in choosing his ground. My cavalry can not only... I mean, he sort of... It sort of like shows... Persian progression that they know they have a problem with the Greek heavy infantry to an extent. <laughs> well, this is something I've wondered as well, because actually you can see that the Persian infantry actually go toe-to-toe -to -toe with phalanxes all the time, and they, they 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 take ages to rout. And Persian, do you want to talk a little about the tactics of the two sides here? <laughs> yeah, do you want to do that here, or do we want to do that later? I don't know if we're... we're Good question. Do you mean, want to come on, go on to my channel? We can do tactics, or we can do equipment, whichever way you guys want to go. Yeah, One way overlap. or the other. So, I mean, it's a question of whether the Persians would have been particularly intimidated by Greek uh, Greek heavy infantry. Obviously, the backbone of Greek armies in this period is, is this large body of heavy infantry, which is just basically um, uh, citizens who are required to, to, to or, or who, who um, spend their money on heavy equipment, a big round shield, a thrusting spear and, and body armor. And they fight in these um, in these large formations. Now, in this period, the development of those formations is still kind of forming. So we're still not in a period where you can say, oh, they have these organized rank and file phalanxes, right? Herodotus never uses the word phalanx and never is able to describe any formation in terms of its depth of shields, which is usually the characteristic where you can say, now we're definitely talking about phalanxes. Herodotus doesn't do that. And it's often said that, oh, it's because he wasn't very military minded, but it's also possible that he couldn't do that because that was not a thing that existed yet. Several of the things he tells us about the way the Greeks fought suggests that they may not have been quite so organized yet. And this is plausible in light of the fact that these are very large forces. You know, these are militias of all of the adult male citizens, but they are not in any sense trained as an army. These are just people. These are just, you know, your farmers and your shopkeepers and people who just normally would go about their everyday lives. But now there's a Persian invasion. So I have to, you know, pick up my armor off the wall and I have to go and fight. And so they have no preparation. They never work together as a group. No Greek has ever commanded this large an army ever, right? And likely wouldn't ever because this is one of the largest Greek armies in history. Um, and they're all together in this one place. And it's obviously not going to be this highly organized and professional well-oiled machine. And they're only able to be there for a very short time. So they don't have time to spend like months in basic training or anything like that. I mean, they just 
the, the Persians are here. We have to go. We have to fight them now. And if we don't resolve the issue quickly, then we're all going to starve because that is what happens when you take your entire workforce out of your economy to go and fight a battle somewhere. So there are huge pressures on the abilities of this army. Fundamentally, it's a very large number of mostly really quite well-equipped soldiers or, or warriors rather, but they don't have very many sort of uh, tactical capabilities and you can't expect them to operate like anything like a modern army. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, their tactical options are quite limited. And it seems like the Greeks in this period, or at least the Spartans, still cling to an older way of making the most out of armies like this, where they essentially have a front line um, that is becoming sort of deeper and deeper, but it's sort of irregularly organized. But they have a front line that forms a shield wall behind which and around which you have a sort of cloud of light-armed warriors. And those light-armed troops are basically sort of projecting missiles. They're they're throwing javelins and throwing rocks and and slinging stones and, and shooting arrows over this bulwark, over this shield wall, in order to weaken and disrupt the enemy and then those single warriors can go out and challenge the enemy and walk into the no man's land between shield walls. Other times, large chunks of that line will sort of surge forward and try to force a breakthrough. But this is a very tentative way of fighting. And mostly the baseline is quite static, right? They, these are not aggressive units. And you see this play out in the Battle of Plataea in particular. So you have these Spartans who are behaving really quite passively most of the time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, so this is the way that they fight but the Athenians have figured out at least by the Battle of Marathon possibly earlier we don't really know Um, but they found out that actually against the Persian army in particular but also in general it seems really effective um, to not waste time with a sort of skirmishing and tentative fight but to reduce that fight to the thing that those hoplites with their heavy equipment are especially good at which is close combat No one likes close combat because in close combat, you are very close to the enemy who has the stabby spears and they are looking to kill you. And this is an environment that you don't want to be in. Like you don't have any time to prepare. You're very much in the hands of fate. But because the enemy also doesn't want to be there, it's a chance for a quick decision. Most of the time, people don't want to endure this kind of close combat for a long time and they will break and run away. And so for these Greeks, this is a really advantageous way to fight both strategically because they are, the army wants to go home and tactically because they are equipped for this kind of fighting and they are uniquely good at just getting up in somebody's face without dying immediately. And so this is something that they they have discovered that works pretty well. And it works especially well against Persian infantry because their way of fighting is in its own way similarly passive. Their way of fighting is very heavily um, focused on a sort of combined arms approach like their infantry is very versatile they're heavily equipped they wear armor they wear spears and swords and axes for close combat but they also carry bows and the way that they fight is they approach the enemy army and they set up a shield wall of these large standing tower shields behind which they will gather you know all pick up all their bows and shoot waves of arrows at the enemy in order to weaken them so this is a much more organized and effective, but in, in principle, very similar way of fighting as the old Greek style, essentially, this sort of transitional Greek style where they have a shield wall and a lot of missile troops behind it. 
But for the Persians, that's the way to fight because the decision doesn't come from the infantry. It comes from the cavalry moving then around the enemy that's been pinned down by this shield wall and this arrow fire um, to break them from the flanks. And so the Greeks have found that when you're facing that, like the Athenians did at Marathon, if you want to decide that issue, you shouldn't stand there and face the Persians and absorb, you know, wave after wave of arrows because you're just going to get whittled down. They're better at that than you, right? They train their whole lives to be archers. They can shoot from horseback. They can shoot on foot. They're proud of it. They boast about it. That's their way of life, right? You don't want to mess with that. So what you do is you reduce that battle as quickly as possible to mm -hmm. a battle that can be fought on your terms. And for the Greeks, that turns out to mean not this passive static shield wall stuff where your rock throwers and javelin throwers can do their work, but rather close combat, where they have the advantage that they don't need to use two hands to wield their weapons like bow and arrow. So they can carry shields and spears and heavy armor, and then they have an advantage in close combat. Yeah. And they're really good at walking in a straight line towards the enemy. <laughs> oh. Well, or running, as the case may be. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the walking, <laughs> the walking slowly thing that the Spartans later invent. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been necessarily um, uh, practiced yet, because that is a way to retain your organization. But yeah. in this period, it doesn't seem like the Spartans are particularly organized. Certainly not more so than other yeah. Greeks. So, um, so this is this is something that would eventually grow. Like obviously, once you realize that fighting in this homogeneous formation of of heavy infantry specialists, um, once you realize that's very effective you then try to make it more effective by, for instance, retaining order, keeping your shield line unbroken so that there mm -hmm. is no way for the enemy to exploit any gaps. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the Spartans will eventually master. But in this period, they're still really um, behind the curve, effectively, mm -hmm. as to how you're supposed to fight Persians. They're all and they know like soldiers. They... Yeah, they're all, they're not, they don't spend their lives training to do this. It's no, and in fact, I mean, they've never they've never fought Persians before, which is kind yeah. of they tried it once. It didn't work. No, <laughs> um, no. So according to Herodotus, before the Battle of Plataea, they they get nervous and they say maybe maybe we shouldn't be the ones who are stationed over against the Persian immortals that they can see down down in the plain. Um, they can see Mardonius drawing up his army, and they realize that his the the cream of his army, the immortals, are lined up against the the Spartans in the Greek lines. And they asked the Athenians, like, do you want to swap? <laughs> because the Athenians have fought and won the Persians, and mm. the Spartans have fought and lost, right? So this is, in terms of expertise, you can sort of see that they, that they would have maybe had more faith in the Athenians to, to, to meet that challenge than they had in themselves. So we've already spoken about Herodotus' 5 million statistic. Oh. But we haven't spoken about his statistics about this battle specifically. So according to Herodotus, the Persian army numbered over 300,000 and they apparently feared the size of the Greek army. I mean, how true is this regarding the size of both armies? Do we know? So this is really, really difficult and it's an endless debate. I mean, 300,000 is the, re the supposed remains of the army after the, the bulk of it retreated back into Asia. Um, and so this is these are the picked parts of the army that stay behind with Mardonius to finish the job. 300,000 is still too much. I mean, this is generally, I think, pretty, pretty widely accepted. Uh, no one really believes that there were 300,000 Persians and allies um, let alone, I mean, we, we, there is another 50,000 Greeks, according to, to Herodotus, which is already too large to be credible. Um, the numbers on the Greek side are partly also the result of some uh, some mathematics, but they we are at least more confident about the number of hoplites that Herodotus mentions. Um, now, there are various things in the story that make us believe that if we know the Greek number, then we can also more or less guess the Persian number. It goes like this, more or less. Um, the Greek number of hoplites is said to be in the area of something like 33,000. If you put the hoplite forces of all these different states together, that's about right. I think 34, 34 and a half thousand. Um, those numbers recur in later conflicts and they, you know, they more or less conform with what we expect from these states when they turn out in full levy. So when they turn out with all their numbers. So those numbers are not really controversial. Um, Herodotus adds, you know, the light arm troops, which he doesn't know the number of because they're never counted. Um, but he, he basically just multiplies the number by two, except in the case of the Spartans, which he was, he's very adamant. He's very certain that every Spartan had seven helots who were armed as light arm troops. 
which means that there are, in the Persian part of the army, there are 10,000 hoplites and 40,000 helots, because 5,000 parioiko are each with one servant, and then uh, 5,000 Spartans with seven each. Um, so there are supposedly 40,000, or like so 50,000 altogether, Spartans or Lacedaemonians, and then the rest of the army, he multiplies the number of hoplites by two in, or, or in order to get the number of servants involved. And the grand total is something like 110,000. That's not really very widely accepted. That is a very, very large number. But it must be assumed that there were large numbers of these um, camp followers and, and, and servants who are around who, you know, wouldn't necessarily just want to waste their time sitting around when the battle was happening and may well have, you know, picked up a rock or even brought some light arms with them in order to participate. And certainly in the case of the helots um, who came with the Spartans, Herodotus is very, very adamant, very explicit that these were armed for war and that they took part and that they were part of the Spartan formation. And that's the really interesting reason why I stress that the Spartans don't seem to have had this organized phalanx yet. It's because the Herodotus says they are part of the formation. They're not next to the formation or behind the formation. They're part of the formation. So the Spartans have this sort of mixed mixed bag formation with a large line of hoplites in front. Now, the point, of, the reason why I'm going through these numbers, are, you know, the fact that the Greeks had, you know, say 35,000 heavy troops and then an unknown number of light arm troops. Um, we don't know how many Persians there were if we don't accept the 300,000 number. But we do know that Herodotus explicitly tells us how these armies were deployed. They were deployed over against each other and they were sort of tailored to match, right? So the Persian immortals were facing the Spartans, the Medizing Greeks, the Greeks on the Persian side, were facing the Athenians, and all the others had their places in between. From that account, you get the sense that, hey, wait, these lines are equally wide which is a pretty good indication that the Persian army cannot have been very much larger than the Greek one. And then you get these anecdotes from, for instance, Mardonius saying, oh, you know, we're afraid because they, they're keeping you know, more and more Greeks keep pouring down from the pass of Kithairon. You know, they, they keep coming into the camp. So the Greek army keeps growing. And then you also get the story that Mardonius supposedly challenged the Spartans to a fight of um, his immortals against the Spartans. So 1v1, essentially, 10,000 versus 10,000, um, which was supposed to be the, you know, the gentlemanly way to resolve this conflict. Now, it doesn't really make sense for him to do that if his advantage is that he has vast, overwhelming numbers, right? It doesn't make sense for him to say, oh, let's give up those numbers. They, they don't really matter. I don't really know what to do with them. Instead, let's fight 1v1, 10,000 versus 10,000. Um, unless, of course... Um, the Persians were actually worried that they did not have the numerical advantage, that they were going to be buried in Greeks um, if they tried to, to fight this mass, um, and that therefore fighting 10,000 versus 10,000 would even the odds and would be in their favor. And we don't really know if we should trust that anecdote, but it's definitely an interesting element that fits the rest of this picture. So you have this sense that it's the Persians actually who are quite worried about Greek numbers. And of course, Herodotus sees this happening and he, he sort of acknowledges that oh, this is a little bit weird where like there are supposed to be so many Persians where they all go um, and so he says and Diodorus also says oh it's because they were deployed really deep right that's where the numbers went so they must have been you know 10 times as deep as the Greek line 50, for some 50 reason. deep or something like that yeah exactly <laughs> some ridiculous depth um, but that doesn't work unfortunately for Herodotus because he tells us that the immortals in the actual battle also faced over against the Spartan part of the line and there weren't any others next to them. So it seems that 10,000 immortals covered the same width of the line as 10,000 uh, Lacedaemonian hoplites plus their light arm troops. So if anything, the Persians were heavily outnumbered in that area and certainly couldn't have been deployed any deeper because then they wouldn't have been able to cover the same amount of frontage. So everything suggests that these numbers were more or less evenly matched. And if anything, the Persians were probably outnumbered. Which is not something that people talk about a lot. You know, a lot of these stories, popularly speaking, depends on the, uh, you know, the, the the plucky, outnumbered Greeks. But um, yeah, um, yeah, to say that to say the least, the Persian War effort at this point is not in a great in great shape, and um, you know, it's not. It's it's very, very logical to to look at it that way. Um, so we're going to go on to the battle itself. 
Yeah, so I mean, as you said before, Mardonius, he, he behaves in a very skilled way, right? So he's leading this Persian army and he's trying to, he does everything right, basically. He chooses the correct terrain for his own troops. He doesn't allow himself to be goaded into a fight, at least initially, where the Greeks are encamped, where it's, you know, up in the hills where he has to fight uphill and he can't use his cavalry because of the broken terrain. Um, he's attacking very deliberately the, the Greek supply lines. He's poisoning their wells so they can't get water. And you have to remember this is in the middle of a Greek summer in an open plain with no shade, effectively. Um, this is, you know, these guys are wearing bronze armor and standing in lines all day long. They have to drink absolutely massive quantities of water constantly. And they managed to prevent that from happening. So they, they are very clearly targeting both Greek morale and Greek health and Greek cohesion. They're probing the line with cavalry attacks. They're attacking They're attacking supply convoys. They're taking out and stealing their supplies and murdering their baggage carriers. Um, and Mardonius is still in this period, um, or at least he was before, the, before the, the, the final showdown, sending envoys to different Greek states to say, hey, wouldn't you rather, you know, switch sides? So he's still trying to sow dissent and still trying to find the cracks in this alliance. So he's both diplomatically and militarily, he's doing a really, really good job of, of you know, the, the mission that was assigned to him. Um, but it does, the Greeks don't budge. They still stay in that field. And it goes on for many days. I mean, we're told that they sit over against each other for like 12 days. Um, and eventually it's the Persians who seem to be the ones who run out of supplies first. So Herodotus tells us that they become very worried that they're going to run out of food. And this is quite understandable because they essentially are inflicting a force of maybe 30,000, maybe 60,000 people of additional mouths on an area that is, you know, only able to produce so much surplus, especially under ancient conditions. So you're planting one of the largest cities in the Greek world, if it were a city, on top of an already existing city of Thebes in Boeotia, um, and expecting Thebes to provide for both. And it just can't. So eventually your food's going to run out. And so they know they have to force a decision or retreat into Thessaly, and then the whole campaign will be for nothing. So they eventually decide well, something needs to be done. Um, so they're preparing to attack. And at that point, allegedly, um, Alexander of Macedon, Alexander I, distant ancestor of uh, our good friend, the Persepolis destroyer, the Vandal of the North, etc., um, <laughs> Alexander the So-So, um, <laughs> Um, but he is the, he's the one who sends a message. He, he's obviously, uh, you know, conquered by Persia uh, twice over by this point. He um, sends a message to the Athenians saying the, the attack is imminent. You need to you need to think about what you want to do here. Um, and the Athenians relay this to the Spartans and they decide to to change positions. They've already run out of water. The, the, the well has already been spoiled that they've been using. So they know that they're in a precarious position. They are exposed. They're too low down on the slopes. So they with, they decide to withdraw into the hills. But because of the threat of Persian cavalry, which is constantly harassing them, they decide they need to march at night. And so they decide to march into a hilly and broken area closer to the town of Plataea, um, across a wide front, several miles wide because of the size of this army, in the middle of the night. Um, as you can imagine, <laughs> the result is complete chaos. Um, there are various annoying reasons. I mean, a Sparta, one of the Spartan subcommanders refuses to retreat generally because he thinks that retreating is bad because he took the wrong lesson from Leonidas's whole thing. Um, so he decides, no, I want to stay here. The Spartans spend the entire night arguing with him that, no, this is obviously better, you idiot. Um, eventually do convince him to move, um, at which point he's the last to rejoin the Spartans. Is he the guy with the rock? The the guy with the rock, yeah. yeah. So he, he he throws his rock, which is, must be anachronistic because the yeah. Spartans didn't vote with pebbles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he picks up a rock and throws it down and says, this is my vote for staying. Um, anyway, so uh, this is a, a convoluted story that shows you how much, I mean, Ted Lennon has a really good point about this, about this Spartan society is riven by these competitive values. Like they're all trying to compete with each other in showing the appropriate attitude. So one of those attitudes is, of course, obedience, but the other is courage. And you have to choose between the two at this point. You have to say, okay, well, I have to retreat from the enemy because my, my regent tells me and my commander tells me those things are in conflict and I don't know which is the right move. Anyway, um, so 
the Spartans eventually do retreat, but by then it's morning, so they're lagging behind and they've become isolated. The Athenians have been waiting for them to move because they weren't sure it was going to happen, so they're also isolated. The rest of the Greek army, which is in the middle between them, um, has retreated too far in the night and has gone all the way back to the town of Plataea. So you have Athenians on the left of the line by themselves, Spartans on the right of the line by themselves, and the entire rest of the army is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> total chaos and very predictable total chaos because this is, again, the largest army that any Greek has ever commanded, and they have no experience of working together. In fact, you know, they have every experience of not working together and they, they don't really, you know, necessarily do so very easily. Um, so you have a situation in which the Greek army has appeared to have fallen apart. And Mardonius down in the plain, of course, can see all this happening on the hillside when, when dawn breaks. He can see the Spartans on one side, completely isolated, still moving backwards up the hill. Um, he can see the Athenians in the distance or maybe not even see them because there's a hill in between. The rest of the Greek army is gone. He says they're fleeing. They're routing. It must be that, right? Because obviously that's likely to happen anyway. No one stands before us. We're the Persians. So this is the moment at which Mardonius says, I got to go after them now. Like I got to, the more I can spear in the back while they're running away, the better. That's my victory. So he sends all of his army over the river, finally up that hill, which he knew was a bad idea. But like now is the time, obviously, because the enemy is no longer cohesive and no longer resistant. So that's what he thinks is happening. And as I said, you know, this is the payoff to all of his good moves. He has been doing everything right, and now he gets his reward. Um, unfortunately, that's not what's going on because the Greeks are too stubborn to know when they've lost. <laughs> so when the Persians advance on their position, the Spartans still stand there and turn to fight them. And that's when the battle proper essentially um, unfolds. So these Persians do their thing. They establish their shield wall. They start firing arrows. Um, the Spartans take that and they endure that for a long period of time, for much too long. I mean, people are dying in the ranks everywhere, um, but they're they're completely passive because they can't get good omens. Um, they they aren't getting the uh, the right um, uh, portents from the blood sacrifice that they habitually do before every battle, and so they're stand they're standing there and, and taking it essentially um, until the Tegeans, who are the only allies who are still with them. Um, who's their neighboring state in the Peloponnese and then and one of their oldest subject allies, um, decide, right, we're, we're fed up with this. Like, we're just going to go for it. Um, so the Tegeans charge forward. And at that mo moment, lo and behold, the, the omens turn favorable. And so the Spartans also charge into, uh, charge into the fight. Um, and that's when you get this sequence where first they overthrow the shield wall, but they don't seem to drive forward into the Persian line. They then sort of stop and hold back allowing the Sp the Persians to essentially reform, but without their big tower shields, and try to find some way to deal with this. And then that encounter between those two sort of tentative, passive formations, where, you know, every now and then warriors rush out to try and dislodge the Spartans or break gaps into their line, but they get rebuffed and they get thrown away, they're thrown back and they get stabbed. Um, this goes on for a long time, because neither the Persians nor the, nor the Spartans are making any kind of decisive moves. Um, Mardonius is right there with them. He's leading them from the front. He's on a white horse. He's very conspicuous. He's pressing them on, trying to get them to, um, to launch an all-out attack on this Spartan line. But because they're in the hills, he cannot use his cavalry. So he has the Spartans where he wants them. He has them pinned down. Although his men are now at a disadvantage in close combat, he could still decide the issue if he could bring the cavalry to bear. But they can't seem to get there. We don't have any account of their actions in this battle. We must assume that it's because they were simply unable to engage in any way, to find a way to approach either the flanks or the rear of the Spartan position. And so it comes down to this horrific battle of attrition between Persian immortals and Spartan hoplites, which the Spartans win over time gradually because of their uh, because of their large shields and heavy armor and their supposedly longer longer spears. The Persians still wear body armor and they are, they are armed for close combat. They're not running away like skirmishers. I mean, they're prepared to fight the Persians or the Spartans. They're not afraid of fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, but they rely on those big tower shields to protect them from direct assault. And once that shield wall is down, they don't all have their own big heavy shield like the Greek hoplites do. And so that puts them at something of a disadvantage. So even then, I mean, this fight lasts for, uh, as the impression we get is it takes a really, really long time. But eventually, um, Mardonius on his white horse is struck down by a thrown rock. So uh, the Spartan Amnestos throws a rock at him. 
and crushes his head. Um, Maronius dies, and that's when his bodyguard collapses, and with them the immortals. Because you know, if you're not, if you're no longer receiving orders, but also you know that there's no longer anyone who can bring in troops to to turn the tide. No one, no longer anyone who can direct reinforcements or who can maneuver in any way. Um, then you can see that you're losing this battle of attrition. You might as well go home. And at that point, of course, um, when the immortals break, the rest of the Persian army does not hold. And so that's when the um, the whole line collapses and flees back to its fortified camp. And um, and the day belongs to the Greeks against everyone's expectation. I made a hurrah. <laughs> well, you know, if you think the Greeks are good guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's just a massive irony with the Battle of Patea, I always think, that even is his even Mardonius's mistake is motivated by the right sort of instinct. Yep. You know, yep. when you're presented with that on the ground in a real situation, you see that in front of you, you're left with no other option but to assume that everything has gone to hell mm. in the Greek army. And as a soldier, you must take advantage of that. Um, yeah, and let's not forget, I mean, it's often said about the Greeks that they prefer pitched battle as a way to resolve wars, which is, you know, it has a kernel of truth in the sense that they want wars to be decided quickly because they need to go home and, you know, do farm stuff and related things. Um, but it was a Persian tradition to beat the enemies in the field. And this is something that Herodotus stresses at this point. And Mardonius feels pressure of his own moral code, essentially. It is the Persian way to fight people in open battle and defeat them that way, because that's how you prove that you're stronger than them. And so letting the letting the Greeks get away is not an option. So it, when he sees them, especially when he sees them running, he has to be like, this is, if I don't do anything now, I just failed completely as a leader. So yes, he absolutely does the right thing every step of the way. It's just that the Greeks are too stubborn to know when they've lost. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, due to this, what ends up fairly catastrophic defeat. The Greeks overrun the Persian camp, and there's just sort of a great chase, basically, across the rest of the countryside, even up into the final fortified camps. And those are very interesting actions as well, but we don't have time for those today. Uh, the mopping up operations afterwards. Um, um, but it's a very significant battle that actually usually gets overshadowed by Thermopylae for some reason. And I think Raoul has given us a great understanding for anybody who has never heard of it before or wanted to know what happened after Thermopylae uh, and Salamis as to what how this how this occurred how Greek remained Greece. Um, so is well, there it would have anyway. I do want to put like I, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I think I think we could actually go into that as well. Yeah, <laughs> what, I mean, I was just thought? want to point yeah, out what I mean, thought people, you want to go with. Yeah, at the end. people just like to dress this up as as this victory of of Greek culture against the sort of uh, culture that was coming to destroy them. When in fact, I mean, the Greeks in the Persian Empire were doing fine. You know, not just in the sense that their cities were prospering, which they were, and that their intellectual development was at an all time high, which it was. But also that, you know, when they established in the Ionian revolt that they didn't want to be ruled by puppet tyrants, but wanted to have democratic regimes, the Persians let them have it because the Persians understood that in order to rule an empire as diverse as the one that they had, the best thing is to let everyone do whatever they want and keep their own customs as long as they, you know, remain loyal and pay tribute. And in fact, you know, somebody like Xerxes, you know, he, go, he comes to the coast and sacrifices at the, at the temple of Athena and Troy. And he comes to Athens. Yes, he raises Athens to the ground, but then he sacrifices to Athena on the Acropolis. You know, he knows his job as a conqueror mm -hmm. is to, you know, try and be acceptable to the peoples that he conquers. And this is something that Persians generally are very good at. So there's no reason at all to assume that they would have quashed Greek ways or any any particular Greek institution or tradition. Mm -hmm. I think so. And that is a great thing to to end this uh, podcast on, I think, Alina, with that with that big myth bust, the biggest myth bust, I think, that you can have with the Greek and Persian wars. And everybody can argue about it for the rest of the day. That is our gift to you. <laughs> it's been amazing to have you back on. I mean, I loved our first podcast, loving the second podcast. So you're welcome back on to History Hack whenever. We can always talk about the aftermath. I think that would be uh, what Josh said earlier to mop up. I think that would be an interesting podcast. So uh, we've got to get you to, back I'd on. Love to do that. I look forward to it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here again. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. 
As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.